Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're talking about the Old Testament with Dr. Jay Sklar, which could not come at a better time given the fact that we are currently in the Advent season. If you're like me, you're walking through the big story of the Bible, remembering the coming of Christ and eagerly anticipating his return. This conversation is going to help you see how the whole Bible points to him. So you'll know our guests a little better. Dr. Jay Sklar is professor of Old Testament and VP of Academics at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. His doctoral research was completed under Professor Gordon Winham and focused on the theology of sacrifice. He recently published a commentary on Leviticus in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series. Dr. Jay Sklar, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here, Hunter. I will call you Jay. You told me to call you Jay when we started. Please do. I didn't realize this, but I have been learning from you for a really long time because Uh apparently you are a contributor and partial editor for the study notes that exist in my ESV study Bible. Is that correct? Uh, Well, for the notes on Leviticus. Yeah, I have it on good authority that at least eight people have been cured of insomnia reading them. They just (laughs) get in and boom. And the bonus is it's non-habit forming. I personally like have relied heavily on those notes, particularly in those trickier books. And I know we're going to cover some of those today, but man, your bio is so robust. You teach at Covenant Seminary. You also teach at other seminaries. You're even a bilingual speaker. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and maybe some things that they ought to know about you before we dive in? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Canada. There will probably be a few words, especially if they have an OU diphthong in them that will (laughs) out me, no pun intended there. But grew up there, did a degree in philosophy, then came down to the States to study at seminary. Uh, Met my wife there. We met in the library. It was very romantic. I tell my current students to this day who are single that if they desire to get married, study hard. It can pay big benefits. Ski and I got married, went overseas to study with a man named Gordon Wenham, an evangelical scholar of the Pentateuch. Did my research there in the book of Leviticus, came back and started teaching at Covenant Seminary, where I've been since 2001. It has been an absolute delight. I love my colleagues there. They've really modeled for me what it means to hold on to God's truth with a warm heart and to teach it and still have a smile on your face. 
sometimes in the Reformed world, we have a deep love for truth, but we tend to use theology either very defensively or somewhat offensively. It becomes a weapon. And my colleagues have just really modeled for me, and the gospel's good news, we should be able to talk about it with a smile on our face. You mentioned teaching at other seminaries. I studied French all through high school in Canada, and then when I came back from England, I started to study it in real earnest because there's such a wealth of material in English that's available on theology and Christian studies and this kind of thing. And overseas, in many other languages, there's an absolute dearth. Jim Elliott, well-known missionary of a previous generation, once asked the question, if you see 10 people carrying a log and nine people are at one end of the log and there's just one person at the other end of the log, if you're going to help, where do you go? And of course, the answer is you go to the person that's there on their own. And North America is like the, the end of the log with nine people on it. So I wanted to see how might the Lord be able to use me with the one person at the end of the log. And so studied French to a point where I could teach in it and then started going overseas once every uh, year to Faculté Jean Calvin, John Calvin Seminary in the south of France to teach there for a week. And that's always a real joy too. Sometimes, because I'm not a native speaker, I'll be teaching and the students are smiling and I'll be thinking to myself, I'm (laughs) not trying to say anything funny at this point. (laughs) Oh, that is absolutely wonderful. And you know, I have never had the opportunity to go to seminary myself. And When I entered into undergraduate school, I did have the wonderful opportunity to meet a lot of mentors who had been to seminary and who had Mm -hmm. formal training and who saw someone who was struggling to understand the Bible. And it was really the first time when I was in undergraduate school that I realized that the Bible is one big story. I had Mm -hmm. never really known that the way in which the Old Testament and the New Testament connect. And I think a lot of people are like that. Like they have these various stories like David and Goliath, like the felt board Sunday school experience that I had, but they often struggle to get their hands on the story of the Old Testament and the bigger story of the Bible. So I think it's tough coming from a Christian background. Like I grew up in church every Sunday and yet I still didn't really understand the picture. So yeah, sure. why is it that so many of us struggle to really get a grasp on what the Old Testament is communicating and what it's pointing us towards? Yeah, I think your experience is very common, Hunter. Sandy Richter compares the Old Testament for many people to a junk drawer. Do you have a junk drawer in your house? That drawer where you've got the string in there and there are matches in there and there's some dead batteries in there, and but there's no organization to the drawer. Yeah. For many people, that's what the Old Testament is like. They know David and Goliath is in there and Daniel and the lion's den, but trying to get it organized, it's really hard. And I think it's hard for at least two different reasons. One is in terms of the Old Testament uh, scope in terms of time. You know, American history covers a few hundred years. The Old Testament covers over 1,500 years and more. And so it's just massive in terms of its scope. And then the second reason we struggle is because it's not, not all of it is chronologically arranged. Right. So if you start in Genesis and you go up through Ezra and Nehemiah, you've got one continuous narrative. But once you're past that, the prophets, for example, they're not in chronological order. So you're reading Hosea, but you don't know 
how does he relate to the book of Kings? Where did he fit in? Was he in the Northern kingdom, the Southern kingdom? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to fit it all together. So those two things by themselves, just the size of it, it's this 800 pound gorilla in terms of the amount of history it covers. And then the fact that it's not all chronologically arranged can really make us struggle to get the big picture of the Old Testament. You have a really helpful tool that you introduced me to when we were just dialoguing about this episode to help people get a handle on the big picture. I would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about what that is. Yeah, the tool is Casket Empty. And you can go to casketempty.com and you'll be able to see it there. It has been incredibly helpful for literally hundreds of my students over the years. It's an acronym that covers the Old and New Testament. So CASKET stands for, the, the letters stand for creation, Abraham, Sinai to settlement, kings, exile, and then this one kind of cheats a bit, second temple. That gives you CASKET. Empty very quickly stands for expectations, so the time in between the Old and New Testament. Miracles covers the gospel. Preaching covers the book of Acts. Teaching for T covers the epistles. And then I thought it was very clever. Y is for yet to come, covering Revelation. And when you put the two together, it's supposed to point to the central tenant of our faith. That is to say that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Ideally, you'd have tomb empty, but it, you know, it just doesn't always work uh, in the English <laughs> language to get it the way you want. This was developed by a friend of ours from seminary, Carol Kaminsky. And Carol, she was a student at Gordon-Conwell with us, my wife and I, and then she went on to Cambridge to do a PhD in Old Testament and now teaches at Gordon-Conwell. She's incredibly gifted, very much a big picture thinker, and she's put this tool together, and it just if you can remember casket empty, you can get a handle of the big picture of the whole Bible. Man, how helpful is that? Because I know so many listeners like myself are reading through the Bible. I'm doing that now with my kids. And sometimes you're just down into the weeds. and You're like, where am I in the middle of this story? Yes. Can you start us off? C is creation. Can you kick it off with that and just kind of start breaking it down for us so that we can get a better handle on this ourselves? Absolutely. So creation. Here you're covering Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, major characters here are Adam, Eve, Noah, and of course, God. God's a major character in all of these different ones. But for each of the letters, I'll identify the portion of the Bible it's covering and who some of the major characters are. Okay. So in creation, here's some of the main points that come out of this section of scripture. The first is simply that humanity is created in God's image, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there are two different things to pick up on here. The first is this aspect of male and female, mm -hmm. both being in created in the image of God. And what this speaks to is, well, the way I put it for my students, this is exactly what you would expect to find if God valued women as highly as he does men. But it's not what you would expect to find if God thought women were second-class citizens. Let me say that again. This is exactly what you'd expect to find, that male and female are equally in his image. You'd expect to find that if God valued women as highly as men. You wouldn't expect it if he thought women were second-class citizens. It's just important to start here because in the very first chapter of the Bible, you have this incredible affirmation 
of the worth and dignity of women. And Ski and I have a friend who wouldn't claim to be um, someone who's walking daily after Jesus, would describe herself as a feminist. And as we talked about this, I brought this up once with her, and she found it helpful to at least consider, oh, maybe from the very beginning, the Bible actually has a very positive picture of women. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to note here is male and female both being in the image of God. And for Israelites growing up in a very patriarchal society in the ancient Near East around them, wow, how important is this for Israelite men to be told right from the beginning, hey, you need to value the women in your midst Mm. as much as you value the men because they're equally bearers of God's image. So that's the first thing to note in this key verse that God's created humanity in his image. The second thing, maybe I'll pose it as a question, well, what does it actually mean to be in his image? This is something theologians have debated over the centuries, but there are two R words that really help me, at least, as I think about this. And and the words are resemblance and representation. Resemblance, image and resemblance. Think of where you see your image. You see it in a mirror right? So in some way, we resemble God, not physically, right? Male and female are in his image. So it's not physically, but in other ways. And and here's where theologians have suggested there are things that distinguish humanity from the rest of creation, um, especially animal creation, things like our moral sense, our aesthetic sense, our use of language, etc. So in some way, we, we resemble God. We're like a mirror, But there's a second aspect here, because if I ask, well, a a mirror, I mean, is that a verb or a noun? It's a noun. It's a thing. But if I ask you define a mirror, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard time defining a mirror without talking about what it actually does. So when you define a mirror, you say, well, it, it reflects. And that's what gets us to the second R, the representation. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And the very next thing he says is, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, etc. We're made to resemble him so that we can in some way reflect him in our lives, ruling here as he would rule. And the key here to note is that when we hear rule, we sometimes see that with a negative connotation. But biblically, this is a very positive thing. You know, you can ask, well, how does God rule? And the answer is Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. To represent the Lord, to rule as he would rule, means you're living out righteousness. You're living out justice. You're living out steadfast love and faithfulness. And actually, if you put it in ancient Near Eastern context, that's what a good ruler does. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary on Genesis, I love this quote. He says, because man's created in God's image, he is king over nature. He rules the world on God's behalf. This is, of course, no license for the unbridled exploitation and subjugation of nature. So, in other words, don't think king, aha, you can do whatever you want to the creation. Wenham goes on, no, ancient Near Eastern kings were expected to be devoted to the welfare of their subjects especially the poorest and weakest members of society. Hmm. And so when we're created in God's image, all that to say we resemble in him in some way so that we might reflect into the world his goodness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. If that's what the image is, 
if you can hold that in one hand and then you can hold in the other hand, oh, he tells Adam and Eve in verse 28, we read God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Well, (laughs) we're not out of the first chapter of Genesis and we're already seeing God's purpose for his creation. If he's on the one hand asking us to represent him in this world, to live out his goodness and his justice and his mercy and love. And then he's saying, oh, and fill this world with image bearers. What does he want this world to do? It's to be a place where there are these little mirrors of him all across the globe reflecting goodness and justice and mercy and love. That's God's purpose for creation. As we go through the story, we'll see he never, ever, ever forgets or leaves that original purpose for his creation. You know, as you're talking about his purpose for us, I mean, it's so clear. Like, we're in 2020, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is not being executed well. There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of cruelty. There's so much hate in the world. So what goes wrong? Well, that takes us to Genesis 3 in the creation part of the story. And this portion of scripture is often known, or what it tells is often described as the fall. Yeah. And there's something true about that because we're indeed broken. This is where Adam and Eve, you know, sin mm-hmm. and curse now enters into the world. And this world is a, a fallen, broken place. But it's more than just that. If you think of the word fall, that can be a very passive thing something you do by accident, you fall off a log. Yeah. But what we're reading in Genesis 3 is nothing less than high treason. Hmm. This is full-scale rebellion at work. And so sometimes when you go through the big story of Scripture, people will talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I always say creation, rebellion, and fall. Nice. Before I go into the other things. And I think this is where we've even got to be careful in some of our dialogue today We use the word broken a lot to describe our sin, and there's nothing wrong with that. That captures a good part of what's going on in this world. But it's much more than that. We're not simply broken. We're also rebellious. Yeah. And we need to make sure we keep both of these together. Man, thank you for pointing that out. It just brings like a little conviction to me because sometimes I'll be like, oh, that's just a derivative of a fall. But I'm like, maybe that, maybe I should focus more on that's a derivative of my rebellious and sinful heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could just blame it on on the fall? Yeah. Well, what Genesis 3 does then is it tells the, the story really of the ruin, this rebellion leads to the ruining of three relationships. Because as you come into Genesis 3, There are three different relationships that are completely harmonious and beautiful and good. Relationship between God and humanity, relationship between humanity, Adam and Eve with one another, and then this relationship between humanity and the animals. Everything is at peace. And then what happens with Genesis 3, this rebellion takes place, and all three of these are shattered. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden away from the presence of God. Some of the first words you read after they rebel and God comes to confront them, you find Adam blaming his wife. You're out, not out of Genesis 3 and you see this marital discord already taking place between man, humanity, and God, between 
humanity one to another, and then, of course, with the creation. Now, all of a sudden, instead of this fruitful garden, it's thorns and thistles that are going to grow. And then, of course, you continue through the story, and what happens, it's not long before one brother is killing another. We tend to think, or sometimes think at least, God is a killjoy when he says, don't get involved in sin. But actually, he's a loving father because he just knows the ruin that it causes. As we continue to go through the story then of chapters 4 through 11, we must not miss the impact that sin has on the Lord himself, and that is that it grieves him. In Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Mm. And when I read these words, to me, Hunter, it's both a challenge and a comfort. It's a challenge because I have to ask myself, does sin grieve me in the same kind of way? Yeah. To be very honest, there have been times in my life where I have said, you know, I know this is wrong, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to do it anyway because I can just ask for forgiveness afterwards. Yeah. That grieves me to have to say that because what does that say about how I view Jesus' death on the cross? Yeah. That's the length God had to go to to deal with our sin. And and when we take sin lightly, we take the cross lightly. Yeah. So it's a challenge. Do I take sin too lightly? At the same time, to see that sin grieves God can also be a comfort. A few years ago in class, I was teaching on how sin grieves God's heart in Genesis here. And the next class, one of the students came up to me. I'll call him Tom. And Tom said to me, Jay, last year, the girl that I was engaged to broke our engagement. And within a week, I learned she was sleeping with another man. And they had not been sleeping together, but she had left him and was sleeping with someone else. He said, this was the most painful thing I had ever experienced in my life. And for the last year, I have been feeling as though God was way out there in the heavens, and I was here alone, surrounded by my grief. And I was wondering, God, how could you let this happen? And then last class, as we talked about how sin grieves the Lord's heart, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I realized he wasn't way out there that he was beside me and that her sin grieved his heart just as it did mine. Wow. And so there's this comfort that comes in knowing that the Lord is grieved by sin because in our suffering, it helps us to know, yes, he's there alongside us and grieves with us Mm. at the wrongs done to us. Mm. So you see God's grief. One other thing you see here in this section is uh, really is God's mercy. So again and again in Genesis 1 to 11, you've got humanity rebelling and messing up, and yet God continuing to come in mercy. So with Adam and Eve, he clothes them, gives them clothing. And in the ancient Near East, what we sometimes miss is that clothing had overtones of inheritance. What does Jacob's father give Joseph to show his special love, right? It's a garment. Garments are associated with inheritance. And so when God clothes them, you know, of course it covers their nakedness, but 
there are these overtones of, I haven't kicked you out of my house in a full and final way. Right? So he clothes them. You go into the next chapter. He doesn't put Cain to death. He calls Noah to build a boat and save humanity. Again and again, humanity is rebelling. And again and again, the story of Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of the Bible, for that matter, is God coming down and mm-hmm. showing mercy that he might draw people to himself. How does the end of Genesis 1 through 11 set us up for the A in casket, which I've already forgotten? A. What does A stand for again? A is for Abraham. Abraham. How yeah. could I forget him? You, you got, well, you're thinking, <laughs> I know A is for Apple, but what is it in casket? I'm like, hey, we're not at atonement yet. <laughs> That's right. Not, not quite. Yeah. So Genesis 1 through 11, it, it ends with this story of Babel. And then a genealogy. And the two work together in this beautiful way. So the story of Babel, what we're reading here is really the treason of humanity continuing. Mm -hmm. So in Genesis 11, the builders of Babel say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And if you're reading in context, you're thinking, hold on a second. I thought God said, fill the earth. And they're saying, no, we don't want to be dispersed. We want to stay together here. Interesting. And not only that, we're not thinking about God's kingdom here. We want to make a name for ourselves. It's this rebellion. You know, they're they're really rejecting God's creation mandates, filling the earth and making it a place of of his goodness and glory. As they say this, you know, with its top in the heavens, the very next verse you read is, and the Lord came down. Which is, I mean, if you're Hebrews around the campfire, you're just elbowing one another at this point and laughing because you realize, you know, this is not saying that God's not everywhere and he has to come down to see. This is a way of saying they are so proud thinking they're going to build this great tower and God has to, with its top (laughs) in the heavens, and God has to squint in order to see it. It's ultimately so, so tiny. Yeah. Whenever I read the story of the Tower of Babel, I'm reminded of this poem, Ozymandias, by Shelley. Okay. In the poem, he tells the story of somebody who was traveling in the Middle East. And while they were there, they saw a statue. There was nothing left of the statue except the pedestal and the legs of the statue. Everything else was broken away. And it begins like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, too vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. Then the poem goes on, and and at the end it concludes with these words. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. To me, he's captured Babel. And in that way has captured our lives if we are living to our own kingdom and our own glory. I don't know about you, Hunter, but I can't imagine any greater thing to hear at the end of my life than well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, isn't that what we all want yeah. if we're following the Lord or pedestal to say? 
this is again the Babel, humanity and utter rebellion against the Lord. And so the Lord comes down, judges them, basically says, fine, you won't fill the earth, I'll make you. So this judgment comes, punishment fit the crime, makes them scatter all over the earth. And then the very next thing we read is this genealogy. Which always trips me up. I'm like, okay, I've read through the Bible many times, but I'm having to fight not to skim this. After the the genealogy of Jesus, this might be the second most important genealogy in the Bible. Huh. What's actually going on here is a play on words in the Hebrew. Okay. So this is the genealogy of, as we pronounce it, Shem. But as a Hebrew speaker would pronounce it, shame. It has nothing to do with the English word for shame. It's just that's how they would pronounce the letters S-H-E-M, shame. And the word shame in Hebrew actually means name. So the play on words goes like this. The builders of the Tower of Babel said, we're going to make a what for ourselves? A name. A name with its, you know, for ourselves and this tower with its top in the heaven. The Lord judges them. And then the very next thing you read about is the genealogy of name, Shem. And that genealogy leads to Abraham. Wow. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your what great? Your name great. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to do it for the sake of bringing blessing to the nations. Hmm. So that what you see is that when humanity in their rebellion thinks they're going to make their name great, the Lord comes down to say, I'm the one who determines whose name is great. And when I make someone's name great, I'm going to do it for the sake of the nations. And that's what leads us to the A of casket, Abraham. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. There's so much, right, in the in the story of Abraham. Could you encapsulate what are some of the main takeaways from that A in casket? Let me give you just a few. So here we're talking about Genesis 12 through 50. Time frame here is about very roughly 2000 BC down to anywhere from 1400 to 1260 BC. And main characters here are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also known as Israel. And so in this section... Uh, what you see is the Lord begins it in Genesis 12 with these words. <laughs> see if you can pick out the key word here. It's not really a hard test. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever <laughs> curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
<laughs> blessed seems like the repeated word that we're pulling out here. And when is the last time we read about blessing? Hmm. It's back in Genesis 1. Yeah. And what you see here is that what the Lord did in miniature in Eden, now you're supposed to see in large in the promised land, which is to say in Eden, you had people in this lush garden. You might even describe it as a land flowing with milk and honey who are walking with God. God tells them to be fruitful in the land and enjoy blessing with him. And then you get to Abraham and the very same things happen. Go to the land I will show you. Um, I'll make you into a great nation. In other words, you're going to be fruitful and I'm going to bless you. The reason he's doing this is to bring blessing to all peoples on the earth, which means once again, God hasn't forgotten his purpose in Genesis 1. In and through Abraham, he's calling a people who are to walk before him, reflect his goodness, justice, mercy, and love into the world so that the promised land becomes like this huge garden of Eden that begins to grow and take over the whole earth. In fact, even the placement of the promised land in what is now what we think of as modern day Israel, mm -hmm. in the ancient world, Israel, it's tiny. It's like the size of New Jersey. But it's this land bridge that if you were in one of the major power centers of the world, Egypt, and you wanted to go to Mesopotamia, you went through Israel. What do marketers say? Location, location, location. Mm -hmm. God chooses this little land bridge because it's the perfect spot to put on display for the nations to see people who are walking before him, being blameless and reflecting his character into the world. Well, you mentioned Egypt. At the end of Genesis, we see Abraham becoming a people, but they have no land. They're actually like in Egypt. Yes. How did they get there and where does the story go next? Right. So it takes us to the S of Casket, which is Sinai to Settlement. And here we're thinking of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the what's known as the Torah or Pentateuch, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And this will take us from yeah, around 1440 or 1260 down to 1050 when the kingship is established. Wow. So characters here are Moses, the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. um, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc. And so you can think of this in terms of three different S titles, salvation, sin, subdue, and, and settle. Salvation in this section is the Exodus. Which is like a big deal in Israeli history. That's what I'm learning from my friend, right? Like their calendar even centers around it, correct? Yes. The first month was the month of the Exodus, as though the Lord resets Israel's calendar so that they begin every year with a reminder of his redemption. Yes. So saved by God here, salvation. So Moses is called, leads the people out of Egypt to Sinai. And in the midst of this, the Lord calls Israel his son. Exodus 4.22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And in the ancient world, that had at least two important implications. The first is one we identify with. If it was a firstborn son or any type of child for that matter, it meant you knew you would have the father's love. We think of the same thing when we think of our kids today. They have our love. But to be called a firstborn son in particular 
had a second implication. It wasn't just that you were loved. It also meant that you had a responsibility because the firstborn son was to learn the father's business. So just by being called a firstborn son, it's already signaling you have a mission. Hmm. Israel, you are to live out my character. You're to learn my business, learn who I am, and live that out in front of the world. Same thing happens a few chapters later when in Exodus 19, the Lord says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hmm. What's the job of a priest in the ancient world in Israel? A priest is there to pray for you, Mm -hmm. to teach you who God is, to be an intermediary between you and the Lord. Israel had their own priests who did this for them, but God here is saying, hey, y'all, you as a nation are going to be priests. And the question, of course, is for whom? The answer is the world. Israel is there to pray for the world, to teach the world who God is. This is their calling. So right from the beginning, they're saved and they're given this calling. The next S is sin. As we know, you get to Sinai. And it's not long before the people of Israel are going back to their old ways and worshiping this golden calf. And it's just, you know, one of many times in the wilderness where they're rebelling against the Lord. A few months ago, I finished a commentary on numbers, and the middle section of the book was actually kind of depressing to write on because you're just reading instance again and again of Israel rebelling against the Lord and experiencing his judgment. And so again, it's a warning for us. So again, this challenge and also in terms of how we see the Lord interacting, the comfort is knowing that when we come back to him, Mm -hmm. he again shows mercy. God's love is not based on Israel being good. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we read, the Lord didn't set his affection on you because you were more numerous than other people's. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because he loved you. He loves you because he loves you. Yeah. When I first taught at seminary, I came in and I'd gone right from seminary to graduate school to then teaching. And so I had some colleagues there who had actually been teaching longer than I'd been living. And I came into this context. Humbling. <laughs> it, wow. I tell you what, it's. It was tremendously humbling, and it was just what I needed. Hmm. And I would walk out of some classes, you know, it's in an academic context, and I love academic contexts, and and I was used to, in academic contexts, getting affirmed. Mm -hmm. And I would walk out of some classes, and I would think, if I were to grade that, that would be at least two or three grades lower than what I'm used to getting. And in the midst of it, I almost felt actually like I became a Christian for the first time. Yeah. I was a Christian, but it just became so clear to me in a way I could feel. And yet, Jay, God loves you just as much at the end of that class as he did before you taught it. Mm. He loves us because he loves us. So this whole section here of Sinai to Settlement, we see God saves them. We see their, their sin. Finally, we get out of the Pentateuch, and we see subdue and settle. And this is where they come into the promised land under Joshua, Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. Um, I won't sing that song right now. Um, 
If anybody hasn't heard it, look it up. Would you like to sing it? <laughs> I should bring my kids in here. They love that one. <laughs> so Joshua, and then after Joshua, we get the period of the judges. We are reading that right now, actually, as a family. We just read about Deborah this morning. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it, it is great and awful. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just see over and over that the nation of Israel is going back to its old ways, which honestly, sometimes I can be so frustrated by when I read the text. But mm. even you just saying like, you know, the story of the Tower of Babel, like they're building a name for themselves. I'm like, how many times do I fluctuate between building a name for myself and then confessing and walking in repentance and seeking to bring glory to God again in and through my day? Like it happens so many times. So I really identify with this portion of the book, sadly, but it continues down the depressing trajectory. (laughs) We just see them going back to their old ways again and again. As you go through the book, there's this cycle here. When the judge died, so you remember the the people, they've been sinning, the Lord sends nations against them, they cry out, Lord, help us, you know, the Lord answers, um, sends a judge. But when the judge dies, Judges 2.19, the people return to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so this pattern of... The Israelites and the judges' generation failing to dispossess the people as they're supposed to. They become like the Canaanites in worship and practice. The Lord judges them. They cry out. The Lord raises the judge. Judge delivers the people. The people apparently are somewhat obedient. The judge dies. And then the cycle repeats all over again. So that by the end of the book, the last four chapters, four different times we hear this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the narrator's way of saying, guess what we need? We need a king. So I'm guessing that leads us to the K of casket king, right? It does, yeah. I find this portion of the text particularly confusing. Like if I were able to kind of line item out what's happened up until this point, I might do an okay job. But at this point, when it splits to like the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel and switches back and forth between them, I have such a hard time orienting myself in the text. So can you help us try and figure out some ways to keep things straight? Yes. Uh, And let me begin by saying that if you head over to casketempty.com, by the way, I make no money on anything you buy there. (laughs) But if you head over there, they have these beautiful timelines. And what I love about the Old Testament one, the casket one, is that when you get to this period, the timeline actually divides Mm -hmm. and it begins to like put the prophets at the appropriate place, Northern Kingdom or Southern Kingdom timeline, what kings exist at that time, et cetera. It's incredibly helpful. That's so great. But for our purposes, let me make a a few comments as you get to the king section here. So here's where we're thinking of first and second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. Several of the prophets are at work during this time. This goes from 1050 when Saul becomes king down to 586 which is the exile of the Southern Kingdom. And of course, major characters here will be Saul, David, Solomon, the first three kings, um, prophets like Jonah, Isaiah are at work in this time. But what happens is this, Israel needs a king. What they do, they call out for a king, but what they want is a king like the nations. And this upsets Samuel, but the Lord says, look, they're asking for it. 
they want a king like the nations, I've got just the guy in mind, Saul. And Saul enters into the picture. And when he's anointed, uh, we read in 1 Samuel 10, so they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. So what they're doing, of course, is they're looking at his physical gifts, not at all his character. Mm. And the problem when you put your trust in somebody in terms of their physical gifts and not their character is that at some point, there's going to be another person who has greater physical gifts than they do. A king who's stronger, or in this case, a warrior like Goliath, who's taller. So this brings us to David. Mm -hmm. And uh, you might remember the story of Samuel going and he's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And, and the first son comes up and he's big and strong and good looking. And the Lord says, don't consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, which is to me, a tremendous encouragement because it means that, you know, the Lord's not, he's not looking at your giftedness. He's looking at your faithfulness. D.L. Moody has this famous quote. I've modernized it just a bit, but he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in and by the person who is fully and wholly consecrated to him I will try my utmost to be that person. Wow. Every time I hear that quote, I just think, oh, Lord, grant me strength to do that. You know, to just to be a person after your own heart. Well, this is who David is. And so, as we know, of course, by no means a perfect man, in fact, does some heinous things in his life, but repents of them. And his posture as a whole is one of, Lord, mm-hmm. it's you I want to follow. And so the Lord enters into a covenant with him. This takes place in 2 Samuel 7. A few interesting things about the covenant. The title, the king is called God's son, his firstborn. Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 89, 20, 26, 27. Where's the last time we heard about the firstborn? Right, it's with the nation of Israel. That's God's firstborn son. Now it gets repeated with the king because the king is to be the ideal Israelite. And his job, what's the firstborn son to do? The father's business. And so this is what the king is to do, to rule as the Lord would rule. So in Psalm 72, you know, the prayer is, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He'll judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. He'll defend the afflicted among the people. He'll save the children of the needy. He'll crush the oppressor. He'll deliver the needy who cry out. And partway through, you're thinking, am I reading a description of the Lord or of the king? Mm. And the answer is, well, that's the point, right? This is what the king is supposed to do, to represent God in the world. And there's this repeat now in 2 Samuel 7 of the Abrahamic promises. So he promises in 2 Samuel 7, a great name. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 12 with Abraham. Uh, Land, descendants, and that God is his God. So again, you have Mm -hmm. land, people, blessing, this great name. And so what's happening here is that God is bringing his purposes about through an anointed king. The Hebrew for anointed here would be a Mashiach, from which we get Messiah, who is God's son and who will lead the people in reflecting God's glory. Wow. This sound like we're looking forward to anyone here? 
it sounds pretty familiar. And it's just so interesting that I've read through the text so many times. And sometimes I just guess I'm so in the weeds that I fail to like pick up on these bigger themes. So I'm super thankful for that. This is just, it's setting us up for Jesus. What happens, of course, Solomon becomes king. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides. So we come to the divided monarchy. And what you have here is in the the north, so to the north of Jerusalem, 10 tribes, and they take on the name Israel. They are fairly consistently evil and rebellious, and they last until about 722 when Sargon II of Assyria comes and takes them into exile. In the south, you had really Judah, somewhat Benjamin, but Judah, So in the south, the kingdom is known as Judah. They're still Israelites, but they're known as Judah. And here you have some good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but again, mostly evil. They're exiled in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. And you see that in the text, right? Like when you're reading through the text, you will see the north referred to as Israel and the south referred to as Judah, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you also have prophets who are working during this time as well, and they're talking to the people. Um, Like Hosea was working in the northern kingdom before Israel was exiled. Yeah. And Jeremiah was in the southern kingdom, a.k.a. Judah, just Uh before and during the exile. So look at you. You're just like you're just an Old Testament scholar on steroids here. (laughs) Well, you make me look good. So can you talk about that? Because as we're reading through some of those books of prophecy, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of that, it's helpful to know who they're talking to and what they're doing. Yeah. And this is where, again, having something visually in front of you, like that timeline from Casket Empty, is so incredibly helpful. At a glance, you can see, okay, I'm Northern Kingdom here. Okay, I'm Southern Kingdom here. Oh, you know, I get to Jeremiah and, oh, I'm right at exile time here. And it just puts it so helpfully in context. Yeah. Both kingdoms eventually go into exile, which is the E for casket, correct? Yeah. And here we're dealing with, uh, this story is told in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, several of the prophets. Um, And our our date here is going to be 586 when... The southern kingdom goes into exile to 539 when some of the exilees return. And major characters here will be Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So what happens in this section? The Bible tells especially the story. I mean, it mentions what happens to the northern kingdom in 722, but it focuses especially on what happens to the southern kingdom in 586 when Jerusalem is sacked. And here's where you want to be reading the book of Lamentations to put it in its historical context. The reason for the exile is their sin. If you had visited Israel, you would have seen this is still an incredibly religious people. Hmm. But it was this veneer of religiosity that hadn't penetrated down to their hearts. And so the Lord says to them, Israelites, this is through Isaiah, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And Isaiah is saying this on behalf of the Lord. This isn't Isaiah speaking for himself, although I'm sure he hated them too. But this is the Lord saying, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your appointed feasts, my soul hates. 
And if you think forward to the New Testament, Jesus has this similar critique of many of the, the religious people in his day. He again had this veneer of religiosity, but they hadn't embraced the covenant from the heart and been transformed there. Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Mm. And of course, this is a, a warning for us. It doesn't matter how many religious things we do if God doesn't have our hearts. That's where it starts. And so for Israel who hadn't given him their hearts, who were rebelling in how they lived, they're sent into exile. This is utterly devastating for the people. I, I think, Hunter, it can be hard for us to really identify with how devastating this was for an ancient Israelite. They lose their land. They lose the temple, which represents the presence of God. You have to be wondering if you're an Israelite, does the covenant even still exist. Yeah. Everything that points to the covenant, everything that was a reminder that Yahweh is our God has been utterly ripped away. And now we're in a foreign land. Does God even still care for us? For sure. That's taking us to the T temple, right? Second temple. Yeah. Second temple here, because exile is going to come to an end and the people are going to come back and rebuild the temple. So this is where we're dealing with Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther fits in this time period, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Joel. Dates here are about 539 down to 430 BC. Some of the major characters we might have heard of that are in this section are like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah. So what happens here is that the Israelites had been taken into exile by Babylon. Babylon's policy was when we defeat a people, we're going to take them out of their country divide and conquer in that way. Persia now comes along and defeats Babylon. And their policy was more along the lines of, no, let people stay where they are, and we'll just govern them and tax them and that kind of thing. So the people are allowed to return in 539, and they start rebuilding the temple. And it's during this time that some of the prophets are at work, and you can see that God's purpose is still to fill the earth with his kingdom. So there's this beautiful passage in Zechariah. This is a favorite passage of a former colleague of mine, Bob Vasholtz, who grew up in a Jewish family that came to faith in Christ. The passage reads as follows. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations, so, and this is describing the Goyim, the Gentiles here, right? This is not just Jews being described. Many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe. And at this point, if you're a Jew, you might get a bit nervous. Mm -hmm. Ten men from nations grabbing hold of the hem of my robe. What's going on here? But they will say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. And so you just see God hasn't forgotten his purpose of wanting the whole world to be filled with his glory. 
and in this case, describing all the nations coming to the place of his temple where they can worship the Lord. The problem, though, is that in this time period, sin still abounds. Mm -hmm. So we get to Malachi, and we read that the priests and the people are still corrupt. They're bringing these blind sacrifices, which, you know, in the ancient Near East, if you had a blind animal, it wasn't worth very much. It just required all sorts of care and that kind of thing. But if you brought it for a sacrifice and did everything just right, you could lead that blind animal in, hand it off to the priest, and no one would know it was a blind animal. Hmm. Right? And that's what the people are doing. And the Lord says, you go and offer those to your governor. See what he thinks of that. I mean, the answer is, are you kidding? We'd never offer that to a political ruler Mm -hmm. because it would be such an insult. And that's just the point. Yeah. So the priests and the people are still corrupt. And when we read through Ezra Nehemiah, you just see again and again that reforms are still needed. And so when the Old Testament sources finish, what we see is the people of God aren't following him. There's no Davidic king on the throne. And it leaves us hungry, aching for a better king. And we all know that's Jesus. So could you identify just a few quick ways that we can actually see Jesus fulfilling some of the images and the pictures that we've seen as you've gone through the text for us? It would be an absolute delight to do that. Jesus is second Adam. He spends 40 days in the wilderness and rejects the devil's temptation of food. Like Adam, there's this food temptation, except Jesus acts righteously not just second Adam, son of David, son of Abraham. So when you're reading through his genealogy, it starts at a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he's coming in the line of David and Abraham. He's the king in whom all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is, of course, called God's son, Matthew 2. So he got up, took the child and his mother. This is describing Joseph. Mm -hmm. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. They're fleeing from Herod here. And he stayed there until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's from a quote from Hosea. And in Hosea, God's referring to Israel. But here it gets applied to Jesus because he's the new Israel, the firstborn son who is perfectly doing the father's business. Wow. You get to Matthew 5. What does Jesus do when he gives the Sermon on the Mount? He goes up on a mountain and gives God's laws. Does that sound familiar? He's now the the second Moses, the great prophet, who perfectly teaches God's laws, but perfectly follows God's laws. Jesus, of course, is God in the flesh. In the middle of the Israelite camp was the tabernacle. Yes. And in Greek, one of the words for that tent was a skenase. And what you read in John 1.14 is that the word became flesh and dwelt, and the Hebrew word here is skenaod, among us. And we saw his glory. Well, where's the last time we've seen a tabernacle and glory? Well, it's in Exodus 40 where the tabernacle's built and the glory of God descends. And that's what we're seeing in Jesus. He's tabernacling, skenaoing among us, and he reflects fully and beautifully and perfectly the glory of God. I love that. Jesus is the Lamb of God. In John 1, we read, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you read through the Old Testament, As you read through atonement, it's this central 
aspect of getting right with God. And it happens through a spotless, blameless lamb. And Jesus is that lamb of God. Back to Jesus as God's son. In Matthew 3, we read that Jesus, as he was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and Jesus saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. In other words, there's this anointing and being called son. Well, where's the last time we read about someone being anointed and his nickname being God's son? It was David. So this is the inauguration of the Davidic king, the Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one in Israel. And what's significant is that Jesus, again, never losing God's purpose in Genesis 1, Mm -hmm. gives us God's mission. So at the end of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the king, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, at this point, if you're a disciple, you might be thinking, Lord, there's like 12 of us, Mm -hmm. 11, actually. Yeah. The world, Lord, you're asking the world? And Jesus says... No problem, because surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And that's the most encouraging aspect of all of this. We don't serve God in our own strength. We don't do great things for God because we're great. Yeah. We can do great things for God because he is great. Yes. And he is with us and he'll never leave us or forsake us. I find that to be one of the themes in and through our conversation today. Just a reminder that God loves us. He set his love on us. He loves us because he loves us and he uses us in spite of us for his glory. And so I'm so thankful for this time. I wish we had time for our typical questions at the end of a conversation. But before you go, I'd love to know who is it that's had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus? So my two short answers would be, uh, first of all, my parents. And I wanted to say that not only because it's true, I just want to encourage parents out there that long haul faithfulness can make such a difference in your kids' lives. And my parents, I was blessed to grow up in a home where both my parents loved Jesus and taught me what it meant to love him and fear him and follow him. Mm. Don't give up, parents. The Lord's using you, even if you can't always see it. Mm. The second would be I worked at a camp when I was in high school and college, and my mentor there was a man named Clarence. I often called him Clary Baby. (laughs) He was 30 years older than me, but one of my best friends. I actually asked him to be a a groomsman in my wedding. I love that. And Clarence, he is one of the wisest men I ever met and felt self-conscious because he never finished college. And yet... That degree, again, what does the Lord say? You know, it's not the height, uh, the beauty of his appearance. Does his heart follow after me? And that's what Clarence did. I would come up, we would have a, I was program director and we would have our own prayer time in the morning and I would come up to his cabin and I still can see in my mind, he's since gone on to glory, but I can see in my mind this man in his 50s kneeling beside his bed, already praying before I even got there. What a tremendous impact he had on me. Mm. 
Well, thank you. This is going to be one of the most helpful resources I think that we have ever offered. I really am so grateful for your time today. It has been a blessing to me and I know it will serve the listeners so well. We hope that this episode is a resource that you'll come back to again and again as you continue to refresh yourself with the big story of the Bible and train others to do likewise. If you want to check out the resources that Dr. Sklar mentioned in this episode, you can find all the details on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com in the episode show notes. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode on the New Testament. Today's episode was edited by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.